0: you know putting the nuance on that to make it actually work i think for me as well like auto ml doesn't have any business sense necessarily so it doesn't know what problems to solve or it doesn't know why it should solve them so i think humans are still a huge part of that i don't think that's going away anywhere soon it's just an evolution and data scientists are going to start you know there's going to be bits where automation comes in and helps us do our jobs even better but i don't think it's going to take away jobs necessarily
1: what's up everybody welcome to the artists of data science podcast the only self-development podcast for data scientists you're going to learn from and be inspired by the people ideas and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others i also host open office hours you can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash I look forward to seeing you all there let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode and don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review Our guest today has spent over a decade in analytics and data science at some of the world's most innovative companies, including Amazon and Sony PlayStation. Over the course of his career, he's interviewed and screened hundreds of data science candidates, and through this process has learned exactly what differentiates an employable data scientist from the rest. He's taken that experience and authored a book titled the Essential AI and Data Science Handbook for Recruitment. And throughout his career, he's also been a mentor to fellow data scientists, from their entry into the field to developing their technical and non-technical skill sets, as well as providing guidance around preparing for and being successful with promotions and interviews. The culmination of that experience has resulted in the creation of Data Science Infinity, a new approach to learning data science. His program has taken input from hundreds of data science leaders and recruiters within the field and is aimed at providing you with everything you need from the fundamentals through to landing a great role in this exciting industry. So please help me in welcoming our guest today a man who is committed to teaching us a better way to learn and do data science, Andrew jones andrew thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today man I appreciate having you here
0: my pleasure completely happy what an intro wow yeah,
1: absolutely, right. absolutely. <laughs> yeah man this is great to actually you know get you on the line and actually talk to you i know we've been in contact we run in the same circle so obviously we it's weird man like we're kind of in contact ish almost on a daily basis through this little group chat we got but i've never actually like sat down and, and talked with you so this is an honor to to have that happen let's learn a little bit more about you talk to us about where you grew up and what it was like there
0: well yeah i mean i uh, so i'm in london now we're just out of london now but i've been in london for for a lot of the last 10 or 12 years but i i originally come from small town dairy farming new zealand you know like a few thousand people in the town you know one primary school one high school pretty different from london and i i I grew up there from from age zero right up to going to university. I studied in in Wellington in New Zealand, and then worked for a couple of years, and then decided that I wanted to see what else was out there in the world, and, tra- and you know, traveled the world, and ended up in in the UK. Um, I actually have a UK passport, which makes it a lot easier. My my parents are originally from the UK, so that made that transition super easy. But you know, in terms of coming from super small town New Zealand, I think you know the place I came from was an awesome place to grow up, you know, a pretty simple existence. But in, in hindsight, I think now I'm, I'm very, very glad that I've gone and seen the world and lived in a city like London where, you know, every person you talk to or work with is from a different country or has a different accent or a different skin color or faith or different beliefs in general. It sort of forces you to become... You know, there's only one way, and that's to be a very open-minded person. And it it means that you avoid falling into the trap of, you know, being huddled close with your own type and being fearful of things that are different because, you know, like I say, in, in London, like any sort of metropolitan city in the world, everything and everyone is different. There's no avoiding that. And I absolutely love that. And I think that's a very important thing, especially, you know, with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, there's a lot of division. You know, I, I think that idea that people can be different from you, and and just dealing with that day in day out is such a good thing to to be immersed in.
1: Yeah, I've actually I've, I've been to New Zealand once. My wife and I were we did a our honeymoon across Australia and New Zealand. We did three weeks. We went from Sydney, did a road trip along the coast to Melbourne, and then from Melbourne flew into New Zealand into Auckland, and I absolutely loved Auckland, man. Like it was a, a cool place. But yeah, like I felt like it was a bit. Multicultural there as well up in Auckland, but I don't know. Wellington's at the South Island.
0: Wellington's at the very bottom of the North Island. So, you if you were going to the South Island, you would leave from Wellington on wow. on the ferry to go across to the South Island. Nice. Wow. Uh, Wellington's like the third biggest city in New Zealand, but it's quite a lot smaller than Auckland. It's probably got maybe four hundred thousand people. I guess. Wow. whereas nice. Auckland's Auckland's a bit bigger. Auckland's maybe like one and a half million.
1: It's a cool place, man. I absolutely love absolutely love uh New Zealand. So I mean London's cool too, don't get me wrong. Like I like that place. But man, like New Zealand just felt so laid back and chill. Like it didn't feel as crazy, hustle, bustle as as London yeah. did. So when you're in high school, what did you think your future would look like?
0: Oh man, that's a good question. I don't even think I could remember what I I thought my future would be like in high school. So I mean, in terms of what I would, what I enjoyed studying from a you know a, a school point of view, like I enjoyed things like math and, and economics. So I guess somewhat related to data science in, in a way. But but in high school, like I didn't know about coding or I didn't know about data or anything or, or anything like that. Absolutely not. I was big into sport. That was probably like my my biggest passion. I probably thought I'd have a career, and I probably misguidedly thought I'd have a career in sport. Somewhere representing the country in, in cricket or something like that. But I think, I've, I think I've passed my chance now of representing New Zealand in, in sport, unfortunately.
1: At six foot seven, it's, it's a shame that you did not get into uh, basketball. Is, is that right? Six, seven, did I get your, your height right. Six
0: foot six. Six foot six. six, um, six Makes Yeah, I, I think I come in at about 199 centimeters. I just missed out on the two meter mark. <laughs> but I play, yeah, I played a bit of basketball. I do like I do like basketball. But yeah, it's a, that's a good question. I, I, I honestly, thinking back to what I thought about where I would go, I, I, I honestly I don't think I even knew that something like analytics or data science existed at, at that point in my life.
1: So talk to us about how you got in, into data science and analytics. Like, what was that journey like? Going from I guess did you start doing analytics in, in New Zealand. Did I start in London? Like, I guess walk us through that journey.
0: So my my sort of journey into or to, to where I am now is a little bit of an odd one, you know, at least compared to most other people in the industry. So, I, I, like I say, I studied in Wellington and I did what's called a conjoint degree where you do, you essentially do two degrees bundled together in one. So, I did a, a commerce degree majoring in marketing and I did a, a science degree majoring in psychology. So, neither of them are particularly STEM based subjects, even psychology, there's a little bit of statistics and whatnot in it. But I, Didn't know anything about marketing. Uh, Sorry, I didn't know anything about analytics or data science until I stumbled into the role. So I actually was playing indoor cricket with uh, a group of guys from that I knew through a shared friend, and I was I was graduating from university with marketing and psychology. But but I you know I loved mathematics, and and, even though I wasn't studying it, and I was just talking to a guy in my cricket team who was a little bit older than me, and he was the manager of a marketing analytics team at a. A telecommunications company in New Zealand, and I was was saying, "Look, I'm graduating soon, and you know, just off the cuff talking." And he said, "You should come in an interview for a marketing analyst role. It sounds like something you know might be a decent fit." And I went in and interviewed, and and very fortunately got. And you know, from in that first role, I learned to code in SAS, and I just was blown away with you know the idea that you could manipulate data and analyze data and understand what customers were doing and and then, you know, the level above that seeing things like predictive modelling, you know, I remember seeing a logistic regression model the first time being used to predict which customers were going to churn the next month from the telecommunications company and then the following month seeing that the the customers which they said were, you know, the 10% most likely to churn, you know, this huge proportion of them then left the business. I thought it was magic. And, it, and, and all this stuff, it just – clicked with me, not in terms of me being able to do it, but it just clicked with me in terms of it sort of lit a fire inside of me. It just, it felt like I wanted to do more and more and more of it. So that's, that's been my inspiration. I just, I, I love the stuff that I do and now, you know, I get to, I get to create content and teach it It, it is, is, is awesome. But yeah, I absolutely stumbled into it, literally stumbled into it through an indoor cricket team connection.
1: Yeah, I used to, Code in SAS as well. Way back in the, well, not way back in days. wasn't that long ago. But uh, for the biostats role that I had, that you know, spent like four, four and a half years, whatever in that role, uh, all that stuff was done in in SAS as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Got a love hate relationship with it. I guess. I mean, <laughs> I like Python better. I guess. What was the the toughest part about transitioning from SAS into like a pro- quote unquote? Uh, yeah, let's just say proper programming language like like Python.
0: So I. My sort of transition from SAS was into R. So I I learned R over here in London, and that was a right. I sort of I can't remember how I sort of got into it. I. I started using it for a few projects, which I needed at work. But then I, I, I discovered Kaggle quite early on, and I just loved that idea of trying to build predictive models and competing against each other. But it's obviously Kaggle's grown into a beast. Now, you know, this was, this was before it was massive. And that's how I sort of learned a lot of, you know, my R coding. And then I actually... Uh, when I was at Amazon, I was still using mostly but a little bit of Python as well and then when I moved to Sony Playstation, I was doing a lot of prototyping of machine learning based features and the engineering teams there just didn't even they didn't even know what R was they just they only dealt with python so i was i i just i I just translated the codes over to from R to Python to do the things I wanted to do, and that was actually a really good way of me learning Python because it was sort of forced to you know i I knew exactly the steps I needed to go through to get from you know whatever the, the the task was, I needed to solve to the end product. I, I knew everything I needed to do. I just needed to figure out how to do that in Python. And it, it's 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 probably one of the better ways to learn. Actually, you don't have to learn from scratch. You're learning from an, or a or you know a template of knowing what you need to do. You have just got to figure out the the syntax you need. But yeah, yeah. It, so I guess that was a reasonably easy transition. Yeah, thinking about it that way, rather than trying to learn it from from the ground up, I think I was quite lucky there.
1: Yeah, that's an important point because when I was going from learning SAS to Python, what I did was I would just recreate the work I did in SAS, but with Python code. Like I knew what my SAS output was supposed to be, so I just recreated with Python, and it, it was like automatically checking whether yeah. I would if what I had coded was the anticipated result. So you mentioned going from okay, SAS to to R to Python. because the learning curve? or learning a new language become shorter and shorter as you just become more and more better at coding, regardless of what the language is?
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's probably fair to say. I think, to a certain degree, I, I think coding in general, up, up to a point, so there's people who are extremely good at coding, you know, in whatever language that, you know, they use. And, and I'm not talking about them. I think for the vast majority of coding, that's not the difficult bit especially with resources like Stack Overflow, where you can literally find out how to do anything in a way where the, the the solutions are ranked by other people's approval of them. You know, you can find pretty good solutions on something like Stack Overflow. I don't think that the syntax of coding itself is not too difficult. It, it, it is more the understanding of what you need to do, the steps you need to take, whether that's like a a machine learning, Pipeline, or, or or just building a machine learning model, and understanding what considerations you need to make based on the scenario you're in, or the type of you know algorithm that you're using, and the, the ways that it deals with data differently. That's the hardest bit to learn because you, you you sort of you only really learn those by trial and error, unless you know you go through a course or a, or a, a book or something. But the coding itself is is a lot of sort of template stuff, and and what I've found over my career is something that I luckily started doing quite early on was I would always save code snippets. You know, right back to SAS, I would have a, a, a notepad file of everything I'd done and then everything would be at the touch of a, a shortcut key to do whatever I needed to do. So I always had this quick template to put stuff into place or or if I'd done something in the past at another business, I'd sort of, I'd know the template or the stencil of what I needed to do and then I'd just rejig that to to work for the scenario that I was in. So you never have to sort of start from scratch. You've always got this this base of of content to to work for, and that's something in in data, in data science infinity. I'm big on as well as creating templates for people to then have for whatever scenario they they encounter. They've got eighty percent of what they need there, and they just need to move the 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 sort of edge cases around, and then they've got you know pretty much their final solution.
1: Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. I guess, like, yeah, for me personally, like, the, because I started learning R way back to like undergrad, and then from R went to like VBA and Excel and to SAS and to Python. It just felt like once I kind of knew how to do something in one language, like, it just became easier to learn something new just because it's just more of a way to kind of think than it is. Like you mentioned, the actual syntax and stuff like that.
0: And the R versus the R R and Python transition was, I mean, like at the very, very granular level, there are some differences, but for most, for most part, they kind of work in the same way. You know, when you're trying to solve, say you're trying to build a machine learning problem, like the, the syntax is different. The way they, they, you input your data and stuff can be slightly different, but it's more, it's more like going from an Android phone to an iPhone. You know, it's like an annoying, subtle difference rather than a major difference of thinking. It's not, it's not that different. So, you know, any, anybody that knows R but thinks they want to learn Python or vice versa, I think, you, you know, it, you can do it. It's, ju- it's just one of those things where you get into such good habits with one language that it becomes annoying more than difficult to move to another language.
1: So you've been in, in this field for over a decade. How far has it come since you first broke into it?
0: Well, I think, I mean, from my point of view, I would say that there have been – there have definitely been changes in the industry since I came into it obviously you know i've I've progressed into different roles in different industries so so comparing exactly what I was doing at the start with what I'm doing now is a little bit tricky, but in general, I'd say there definitely have been changes but there are things that have stayed pretty constant as well so like obviously there have been radical increases in like the amount of data that's being generated and the number of companies that are generating it like I saw a statistic the other day which it always blows my mind i think i'd seen once before but it was that every minute of every day 500 hours of youtube content is uploaded to youtube so like every minute of every day there's 500 hours of video content going up i mean that's youtube you know one of the biggest companies in the world you know obviously being part of google but in video data being very rich but it just kind of shows you the insanity of the amount of data that can now be stored and used and that you know for for a lot of companies that's not the case but but they are starting to collect a lot more data you know companies are looking to capture everything they can because they know that there are ways to now use that to to get ahead of the competition or stay up with the competition there's been rapid you know hardware increases obviously when when i was first in in analytics or data science the idea of You know, this was probably before even deep learning was really possible. Because GPUs over the past five years have really, really come along, and that has come with these massive advances in deep learning as well, especially in like language understanding and language generation. But in in saying all of that, you know, there there have been these immense increases in you know data and in hardware, and this is you know a lot of new amazing things have happened at the cutting edge, but. None of those things I would say for the vast majority of businesses, none of those increases and in things have instantly solved the vast majority of sort of data-related problems that they have. There's definitely been sort of a lot of hype around data science and, and whatnot for the last few years, but I think people are starting to realize at the end of the day sometimes like a simple common-sense solution, you know, to the, to the actual business problem or customer problem can actually make a lot more sense than, you know, the past three years there's been this, this huge emphasis that data science is going to solve every problem that a business has. And I think people are starting to understand what data science is and what data science isn't. And, and you know, putting in place a, a, a simple but effective approach can be the best way forward sometimes.
1: So can you share a hot take with us on where you think the field is headed? Remember, this is this is the Artist Data Science podcast, so we all have a little bit of controversy so maybe sharing a secret contrarian viewpoint that you hold, which might be different from the rest of the uh, data community.
0: Well, in terms of where data or data science or the data field is going, I could probably say with one hundred percent certainty that I have <laughs> I have no idea, and I don't think anybody can tell you where it's going because we're just seeing crazy stuff happening at the cutting edge. We're probably going to see massive you know, further advancements in the areas of language, I computer vision, maybe there's a lot of headroom there. We're sort of lagging behind the, the language models now. I guess my slightly contrarian view on data science is like, I personally have zero fear that AutoML is going to come and take away data science roles. So I, I think AutoML has its place. I don't believe the hype that it's going to kill the data science industry. It's so AutoML on its own it you know, it, it can allow you to, to scale and build huge volumes of sort of simpler models but i don't necessarily think it has the ability to solve extremely unique problems so like at my time at playstation we would we tried a lot of you know off the shelf solutions For things like identifying which character was on screen in any particular game so we could do certain things with that but but all of the -the off-the-shelf models were tuned to things like the real world so humans and animals and street signs and traffic lights and whatever it may be you put it into a game where it needs to identify some sort of robot dinosaur then it's like i have no idea right you you need somebody in there to be you know putting the nuance on that to make it actually work i think for me as well like auto ml doesn't have any business sense necessarily. So it doesn't know what problems to solve or it doesn't know why it should solve them. So I think humans are still a huge part of that. I don't think that's going away anywhere soon. It's just an evolution and data scientists are going to start, you know, there's going to be bits where automation comes in and helps us do our jobs even better, but I don't think it's going to take away jobs necessarily. I don't have any particular fear about that.
1: Yeah, where do you think that's coming from? Like, I hear that come out. And I share your, your view on that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, come on, it's not really going to, if you're worried that's going to take your job, you're probably right because you're probably the type of data scientist who. <laughs> Did should. you
0: post that the other day? I think I saw that. that yeah, yeah. What you just that. said, yeah,
1: I like I that. To take on that, but uh, yeah, where do you think that's coming from, man? I feel like, uh, I feel like it's like a, unnecessary earmongering. and I don't know, man. This is like any kind of boat. Well, I anything. think.
0: I think it comes from social media, right? Social media is this warped view of reality uh, in, in everything, and. In, you initially think of that being a problem on like instagram right with people and having body dysmorphia maybe you know you don't think about it as being a data science problem <laughs> but social media is is a platform where people share their perfection right and they don't show what's not not going well or, or the the tape which is holding together their dodgy code and whatever else right so you know, you see things like GPT three coming out, the the language model, and it can write all of its own code. And people go, "Well, game over for me, right? Like, who needs who needs to hire me now?" But that that's happening at the cutting edge. But we over we overestimate how much of an impact that's going to have on the whole industry. So 99.9% of businesses aren't in a position where they are going to be able to get GPT-3 to write their code for them. And if it does, are they just going to blindly trust that it's doing the right thing? No. I I, I think the warped view of social media has a really negative effect in a lot of areas of life, And and it even creeps into what we do too, which is scary when... You think data science and, and data in general, we should be the people who are the most logical, you know, like people with the most common sense thoughts and we, we judge everything by its merits and we look at the data and stuff, but still you see some shiny new thing and, and you go, Well, that's it. Some machines are writing code now better than I can write code, so who's gonna hire me? But it's that might be true for some major company that wants to put it in place but most most companies still honestly are trying to get to grips with the data they have they're trying to understand how they can be more data driven and and they just need somebody to help them do that
1: what's kind of like the thing that you're maybe most excited about or or most hopeful about like is there is there some application of of machine learning ai data science whatever you want to call it in general that you're kind of excited or that you want to see happen
0: don't know I, I I'm very I'm blown away with the the transformers that are coming at the moment i'm I'm, I'm blown I, I I've not worked with transformers a lot i i I've got a book on transformers that i, I try and read when I have some spare time but I, I'm not that close with how they're working but i've I've seen snippets of something which I think is really cool that obviously the 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 models which were performing really well are just beasts that you know immensely big whereas now people are trying to be clever and trying to scale them back in terms of you know how many parameters are actually in the network and it's you know they're finding clever ways to make it outperform that much bigger model i think that idea of making these things much more lightweight that's that's super clever stuff that people are doing there i'd love to see i'd love to see some more progress within computer vision i feel like this sort of hit a bit of a a ceiling in computer vision a couple of years ago and there's been no Next step that's happened in terms of something amazing, you know, we we just know that we can fool a computer vision model with a you know a small square, <laughs> you know, of some color, and it just completely throws it off. I, I'd be excited about seeing the next big thing in computer vision. I think
1: did you, did you work on computer vision stuff at, at PlayStation, or did I make that up?
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of computer vision stuff at PlayStation. Yeah, my my role at PlayStation was so cool. It was like I was consulting there but it was kind of in a prototyping team so it was it was kind of like the dream role it was like come up with cool stuff that we could use as features for the playstation 5 so there was me and another data scientist and then there was a bunch of engineers from all sorts of different skill sets and we were just a team of of people who tried to use the data that we had to come up with cool stuff it was like the dream role (laughs) for a data scientist i think there was no like Specific thing you had to be doing, you had to be trying to be creative and come up with new things that could be mind blowing. That's
1: pretty cool, man. Like for working in that type of role, was that you know were you working with like data that was tabular data, unstructured data? Like what type of data were you working with? And I mean, obviously, without spilling the secret sauce or or NDA violations or anything like that, can we talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I probably can't go into too much detail, but yeah, honestly, it was, it was a mixture. There was obviously a lot of video data, you know, I did bits and pieces with other guys in the team would do bits and pieces with trying to come up with ways to understand exactly what was happening or, you know, overlay things on, on video in real time. And, and, um, and then, yeah, there was tabular data as well. So we would have, you know, a, a, a PlayStation game is always, or a game in general was always emitting the telemetry you know exactly what's happening at any point and and it, like any role it was a big part of it was dealing with real garbage data and big be, because the game wasn't the game data the telemetry wasn't really designed to be used features it was just created for the developers of the game to kind of keep, keep track of what was going on or, or or to be used for other logic in the game so in a lot of times, it was inconsistent, you know game to game, because there wasn't a great format but but PlayStation had made some real big strides in terms of making that a lot more consistent while I was there and that that was gonna be the biggest win, I think for them, disregarding all of the cool stuff you could build, getting the data into the right format in the first place, so people like me and the other data scientists that were there could actually start you know working in a streamlined way that was gonna be the biggest win. Which, which is what we always know, right? We know at the end of the day, the data has to be right for, for data scientists to actually do their magic, and that's why data engineering's come, you know, to, to become such a the, the new sort of hot topic. It's not because data science was failing; it was because people thought data science could do everything, and yeah. and that's not never been the case.
1: Yeah, at telemetry data is really interesting, man. I was at I was at the the gym last week. At some point, I was doing some some rows. Had my Apple Watch on. And my Apple Watch just knew just from this motion that I was doing a rowing exercise. And, you know, me just being a data scientist, machine learning practitioner, trying to deconstruct that. I was like, how do they, how do they do that? Right. Cause all you have is a watch. Right. And so, like, you know, what, what input data like would need to, would the watch need to know? It would probably need to know, I don't know, like its movement along the X plane or its movement along the Y plane and like just over time. And, and yeah, just thinking about how to, Reverse engineered the models. I don't know where I'm going with that, but
0: totally. it's, a f- it's a
1: fun exercise to do as a data scientist. So the,
0: I think the the PlayStation controller. You, it, so you know when you're using a PlayStation controller, you you can control some of your games by moving the controller itself. So that it has, it has. I can't remember the word for it. It's got an accelerometer in it, and it's got a something else. You know, because because it has all of the dimensions, doesn't it? And I worked on a project with some of the other guys there, which was is is actually being patented by sony and it was yeah using the the controller to identify who was holding it so you could have a signature move that you used which would tell the playstation that it was you without having a you know log in or something it was a bit of a, it was one of those sort of left field ideas that we had but it was a super cool project so you know using that data getting people to create a pattern and then using machine learning and deep learning to understand exactly whose pattern that was that was quite a cool like mini project
1: yeah yeah i always find that so much fun like as you know as a data scientist when i when i see something and i know under the hood that okay this is happening because of a machine learning algorithm in the background i always try to deconstruct what it is that it's doing like what's the input data data that it just took from this you know action that i took and how did it you know, how did it infer that this would be whatever the the right thing to do at that moment? I don't know. Do you ever do that as, as data scientists trying yeah. to deconstruct like Always. machine learning in the real world? Yeah. What's a, what's like a what's like something that's just been kind of like tickling your mind lately in, in terms of in terms of that?
0: Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know of anything recently. I can't remember recently. I I still am. I still am blown away by things that aren't like data science related, but are maybe mechanical. So you're sitting at the traffic lights. And there's like, it was like a garbage truck or something and the way that all of the moving parts were, were working together based on some sort of computer system, which has got some logic put into it. And I was like, like, has somebody coded that up? Is that like, is that some code? It's like, not it's not Python. Like it's not yeah. some person in Python. It's some like hardcore coders. i I honestly i don't know how it works to the point where like i think about it as the like the toaster or the washing machine and i'm like how does that even work i I don't know i'd love to know i'm sure i'm sure somebody could tell me how it all works i honestly don't know but these are these things that they pass you by like we're in a world now where all of our music's digital you know we've gone past cd-roms we've gone past cassette tapes like cassette tapes you know, they were big in like the eighties and nineties. Like I couldn't tell you how cassette tape worked. Like, yeah. it plays music. It's just like voodoo magic. But that's like thirty-year-old technology, and I'm just like, I have no idea.
1: Yeah, it's always fun to be curious about things like that, man. Like, that's still one of the joys I have in life is trying to deconstruct explanations for things. Like, okay, I don't need to know how it works. Just explain how it works, and if I understand the explanation and I can connect enough dots, I'm, I'm good. I mean, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got like an 18 month old baby now. Uh, and just watching the shit that he does, like, and says, and like how he learns and trying to relate that connect. Okay. Here I see an actual human learning. And here I am as a machine learning practitioner trying to draw parallels between, you know, his neural networks and and actual neural networks. It's it's been super fascinating and
0: super fun. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Watching kids learn when you're, when you have done deep learning. Yeah. Is yeah. so fascinating. Like the idea that they can identify like they, they might see a, a picture of a lion on the TV a couple of times, but then they'll see a cartoon lion, which doesn't really look like a lion that they've seen, but they'll go, There's a lion. And you know that no deep learning algorithm would have figured that out as a lion. No chance. So you're like, what is going differently? What is going on differently in their brains? And that's what I'd like to see this this next step in computer vision. I know Jeff Jeffrey Hinton talked about capsule networks a few years ago, and I've not seen anything more on that. That would be cool, yeah. but yeah, who knows I, there must be something big coming up surely,
1: yeah man it's just it's, it's fascinating stuff, man, Just intelligence in general, whether it's artificial machine learning or human intelligence, it's just mm. so fascinating, man before we get too philosophical here uh <laughs> let's talk about it talk about your your mission to help you know develop data scientists i mean obviously the I think it's a mission because of data science infinity and the work you do there, and then all this awesome webinars and then workshops and stuff that you do. but where did that desire come from? How, how did that start?
0: well I, I've always had the opportunity in the roles that I've been in throughout my career from time to time to sort of mentor other junior analysts or you know whoever I may be, and I've always really enjoyed it, and I'm not a super extroverted person or anything who, who, who necessarily goes looking for that. You know, the opportunities that I've had, have found it really fulfilling. And, you know, I even like vividly remember one time helping a junior analyst who really wanted to get into sort of machine learning but was sort of stuck in a team that was just doing dashboards and analytics, and I, I managed to help her buddy up with somebody in the advanced analytics team where I was working, work on a machine learning project, and she did really well, and I think she ended up moving into the advanced analytics team, and it was like... A, I felt like I had made this sort of difference in somebody's life in the world of data science. And I, I vividly remember that because it felt so good to have helped somebody, you know, figure out what they wanted to do, but also help them get there when when nobody else was willing to do it. So that so I've always found that part of my career fulfilling. And then in terms of data science infinity itself, where that came from. So like I had been consulting at PlayStation for about three years, I think, and and then. That just happened to come to an end because the tax rules in the UK all changed, meaning that the way that I was consulting and the way my business was consulting with PlayStation, it, it all changed. And then that sort of whole contractor consult, consulting market, just the bottom just fell out of it. So I, I'd been thinking about doing something on my own in some shape or form, whether that was like a consultancy or whether it was... Teaching or whatever, it would. I'd been thinking about the idea of doing something for my own company for a while, and I, I had all of these useful code snippets and you know all of these other bits of information that would be great for a, for a course. And I also realized that I had some experience that not many other people had, and that I had been very fortunate in my time at Amazon and Sony, and even before that, to have interviewed and screened you know hundreds and hundreds of candidates, and you just don't really see that that often i was just being very fortunate to have been put in that position and i enjoyed doing that so i always sort of tried to tried to be in that position as often as possible and you know not not only was that experience of interviewing very useful but i, I had just organically built this very sort of acute view of what it was that discerned candidates who got the role versus those who just missed out time and time again so i kind of at that point figured that there was something I could use for the content and then there was at least a point of difference for me to try and say, well, here's something that could be valuable to you. So I took the plunge and started working on what would become Data Science Infinity. And I didn't want it to be based on my opinion. Uh, during all of those interviews, I, I'd seen so many people come in with this certificate and that certificate and they just it, it just didn't there was a disconnect between what they were coming in with and what hiring managers or interviewers actually needed or actually wanted. So I didn't want any of the content or any of the sort of uh, uh, advice to be just my opinion because I think that's a big mistake. I mean, you'd never, you'd never like a, a data scientist or a, or a statistician who relies on their single opinion is almost it's it's ironic almost, isn't it, you're using a sample of one and you'd never use a sample of one in your work. So I went out and I thought. I'll go talk to a bunch of other people. So hiring managers, leaders, and recruiters. And I went and talked to hundreds of them. And I still talk to hundreds of them. Uh, you know, I've got my sort of group of people and I, I can continually reach out and try and update that view of the industry. So I asked them all about things like skills and tools and education and interviewing. What's the difference between great data scientists and good data scientists? You know, To add to my own experience, what's the diff- you know, what is it that differentiates people who land roles versus those who miss out? Long story short, boiled all of that down to the initial Data Science Infinity curriculum. So Data Science Infinity now is basically around, you know, learning the right skills that hiring managers actually want, and that's come from hiring manager's mouth rather than a job description, which we know it, and 80% of the time it just garbage. It's all about learning in the right way with, you know, a, a focus on intuition and actual hands-on application, and then actually landing a role at the end of it, because 99% of the time, that's what people, that's their goal. They don't just want to learn it because they're fascinated by it. They they want to move into it. They want to change careers because they're unfulfilled with their career or maybe their industry is being automated and they want to move to something which is a bit more future-proof. So I thought, you know, I, I at least have this point of difference. So I, I went for it. and It took me about seven months to build up all of the content, which was five months more than I thought it would and then, like I was saying to you just before we went online, I just realized the other day that Data Science Infinity has been live for a year. Last week, I think. Yeah. It's been a massive learning curve. Like the data science stuff itself, that's kind of fine. I'm happy enough with that. But marketing and selling and pricing and like, I didn't know how to do that. that the the first year has been a massive learning curve,
1: definitely. Yeah, man. I, I can imagine as a, as someone who's launching my own course, uh, that there's a lot to learn. Um, but yeah, dude, Data Science Affinity is definitely an excellent program. I've uh, signed up for, for, for that myself. and So, seeing the work that you put into it, it's definitely uh, good stuff. So, speaking of the secret traits of, of great data scientists or secret traits of those who get hired, uh, share a few of those with, uh, with the audience here. What, what makes a, an employable data scientist different from an unemployable one?
0: Well, I think at the, at the end of the day, I think the, the difference between a good data scientist and there's a lot of good data scientists and then there's there's the great data scientists and I think the the difference between good and great is often the soft skills and we talk about this a lot I I I know you have your views on it and it's it's fairly aligned with with mine I think and in my experience and this is something I say all the time that by far the the best data scientists that I've worked with in my career at companies like Amazon, you know, where, where the people are incredibly talented. They're not the smartest people by definition. They're not the best mathematician, the best coder. Absolutely, absolutely. They know their stuff in terms of their coding and their statistics and, their you know, other key data concepts and tools, but they are the great ones are the ones that can understand what the business is trying to achieve and then use data and their skill set and, clever and often quite you know simple ways to actually add value to the business or to the team. I think communication is a massive thing that differentiates the majority from the, the top tier data scientists. I think you could summarize it down to say that a good data scientist knows a lot of technical concepts, but a, a great data scientist can simplify those right back. In a way that everybody in the business can get on board with whatever the project is, you know, no matter how complex it is. And at the end of the day, I think like great data scientists have this, they're, they're able to view what it is that they're, you know, why are we here? They know that they're there to actually solve problems, not create new problems, you know, finding problems, finding difficulties of why something won't work. Let, let's find a way that it will work you know whether that's simple or whether that's complex let's find a way to make it work and let's do it they know that they're there to enhance or accelerate business decision making again you know same sort of thing not get in the way of it they're there to add value at the end of the day you're you're being paid so there's an ROI people are expecting you and what you do to have a return on investment so you sitting in your chair being the best mathematician in the world or the best coder in the world but you can't explain anything to people in a way where they get on board, and and, and whatever it is you're building actually gets implemented and starts adding business value, then what's the point of you being there? You're great that you're smart. That's awesome. But you're being paid for a return on investment.
1: So I guess, where do you think most data scientists go wrong in terms of their own career development?
0: If if I was to simplify it down, in terms of career development and trying to land roles, you know, whether that's your first role in the industry or maybe you're looking to move from your role up to a bigger and better role, I would say, and this is something I see both on resumes, the way resumes are written and in in interviews as well, is is this the, the first selling point they see for themselves is slightly off, only by a bit, but it's they go in with the sales pitch of, Look at what I know how to use. Here's the list of things. And, and it's not the best way to sell yourself to somebody who is, who is, they're hiring somebody not for fun. They're hiring somebody because they've got a problem they need to solve. Or they're so busy that their team can't keep up with the work. They need somebody to come in and solve problems. So it's instead of this narrative of look at what I know how to use, It just needs to be tweaked slightly to be, look at what I can do with what I know how to use. And and that simple change in terms of your mindset, and and then it just flows onto your resume and, and the way that you describe your projects and interviews, that is going to make the biggest difference at the end of the day. So if you've got a data scientist coming in for an interview and they're saying, I built X and it drove Y million incremental dollars, or I built X and it saved y analyst hours or i built x and it reduced churn by y percent you know that's a very i'm I'm simplifying that right down but it's not just i used python i used tensorflow to build this cool thing it's i built something and look at what it did and then all of a sudden the interview is going this person that's talking to me uh, the cogs in their mind are turning they're saying this person's going to either solve the awful problems that i'm struggling with either this person's going to make me and my team look really good which is <laughs> at the end of the day a big part of what people are looking for or this person that's talking to me they're going to make the business money and like all of the the BS aside that's what interviewers are looking for they're not looking for just another person who knows python they're looking for somebody who's going to solve their problems and going to add value you you know using those skills don't get me wrong you need those skills but you want to sell yourself based on the value using the skills, not just giving a list of things that you know how to do.
1: Absolutely love that, Andrew. Uh, let's take some uh, questions coming in from LinkedIn. There's a bunch of uh, questions coming in. I, I think we could tackle uh, some of these. People happy? By the way, on LinkedIn, if you're watching. Everybody, smash a smash a reaction real quick, man, and share this with the network. I see I see a bunch of you watching, but not enough reactions and not enough sharing with the network, my friends. All right, so Lenny Chandra. That's a question, a general question. But how to choose the right model to train the data? It's one of those vague questions. Um, you want to give that a try, or should I, should I uh, give one of my standard responses?
0: Yeah, I think I think there's probably a, a, another couple of questions yeah. before that. But yeah. but I wouldn't think uh, I wouldn't think what's the type of model to train the, to use on the data. I, I, th- I, I again I would think what is the What is the end result we're looking for? Like, what are we trying to solve here? And so something I say all the time, uh, Harpreet, I'll let you answer as well because I know you'll have a good answer for this. But something I say all the time to my students in Data Science Infinity is always, always, always start with the business problem, get a really good understanding of what that is, what success might look like, and then work backwards from there to a data science solution. Don't do it the other way around. Don't start with a data science solution and then try and force that into the business problem because you, you never align the two that way. So start with the business problem and then work back.
1: Yeah, I was pretty much going to say the same thing. Like, I don't think no, it's ever really the first question to ask is, how do I choose the right model to create the there? I mean, okay, let's say you've done everything up until that point, and now you're like, okay, I'm ready to, to you know, get a model to this and and figure something out. How do I know which one is the right one? Experimentation, that is the science in data science, right? So maybe further upstream, you plan out in advance that, okay, because of the business problem, because the problem statement, because the nature of the data, because of what it is that I'm trying to predict, given all this background context, here's the suite of algorithms which I'm going to try to solve. For this problem, and of this suite of algorithms, maybe I'll, you know, do some statistical tests to see which one truly is performing better. Obviously, I'm assuming you've already got like a baseline in place, right? Because you need to have a baseline before you start on more complex things, right? So this 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 is the whole process, right? So I would say first, you don't know what the right model is going to be ever. You start with baseline, start some candidate algorithms, see which one of those candidates perform best, and then optimize. Best performing one. Uh, there is no yeah. the right, gray right model.
0: And then, and then on top of that, exactly right. On top of that, you've also got considerations around what's needed surrounding the model. So, so very simply, if you were to compare, l- like linear regression, a decision tree, and a random forest, for example, like a random forest is a is a little bit harder to interpret exactly what's driving the predictions. A decision tree is super easy to see that linear regression. Can be really, really useful for that too. So, it kind of, it's not all about model performance. Is it? Sometimes there's other things that need. You know, sometimes you don't need to know what's driving the model. You just need to get the best prediction. Sometimes you need to very be very well aware of what it is. If it's a if it's a churn model, for example, knowing exactly what the drivers of churn are is extremely important because then the business business can actually action something off the back of it. And the other the other thing I'd add to that as well is I'm a massive fan of. Starting with an MVP mindset. So MVP being, you know, minimum viable product for anyone that doesn't know that acronym. But and that's not saying that you definitely have to go and build an MVP, but but in your head, think about what's the what's the absolute bare bones solution that would Get us to a place where everyone in the business that needed to be involved could understand what we're going to do and what what the output's going to be and where the touch points are from different teams. And then, you know, you can go and then build a version too, which has all the complexity in the world, but start with a simple solution that people can buy into.
1: Another question coming in here from, from Christine Seagrave, good friend of the show. How can machine learning develop a means to incorporate underlying human emotions that underpin decision making. Okay. Is there a field within machine learning that focuses on incorporating human concerns into technology development? Interesting. What okay. that? That's
0: a good question. I don't I don't have a, a super good answer for that. I I guess I guess with the advances in language modeling at the moment, there there's, you know, you could you could infer emotion from what people are saying. I know from like more of a computer vision approach, there's been a lot of attempts to understand people's facial expressions and things like that, but I don't think they've been extremely reliable to the point where they were used in in interview scenarios for example and, and there's a lot of you know not only is it you know have to be very performed very accurately but also the the sort of uh, ethical areas around that as well yeah, I don't know a, human emotion is not something that I've necessarily seen being as the number one focus of a a deep learning model, for example.
1: Second question, I think that would be ethics, right? Is there a field within machine learning that focuses on incorporating human concerns into technology development? Uh, I think that would just be AI ethics, machine learning ethics, something like that. Something that I find interesting, but I don't know of many resources that discuss that too much. I mean, there's a few books. Hello World by Hannah Fry, I think, touches on that. Weapons of Math Destruction, There's books on the topic, right? But not like textbooks or or anything like that. Like definitely no boot camps that talk about it. That's for sure, which they should. Um, But yeah, great question there. Russell Willis, good friend of the show, says accelerometer and gyro data. I suspect, I guess that was in respect to the the Apple Watch being able to predict which activity I'm doing. But even just think about the the entire like how they made that happen. They probably had to pay a bunch of people to wear a prototype Apple Watch. Have them go exercise, and then you probably had to like have like a whole range of people, you know, from healthy and not so healthy, and fit not so fit, and then think of all that training data, right? They probably mm-hmm. you know collected just and and you remember they can only collect data that's here, so they probably had heart rate data and like you mentioned, accelerometer gyro data. They probably had something like baseline heart rate to accelerated mm-hmm. heart rate after some minute of time mm-hmm. and things like that. And you think about okay, great they. Paid a bunch of people, collected all that data, and then they took all that data, and then they probably, I don't know what type of model they've used, maybe like the RNN or something like that, and then take the the, the RNN, whatever ensemble of different models they have, and deploy it on an edge device that then just takes essentially heart rate, accelerometer, and gyro data, and that's just mind-boggling to me. That's the kind of stuff I like doing. I like reverse engineering machine learning algorithms. Literally, I've been thinking about this for a for the last few days. <laughs> so, Christine <laughs> wants to know, what advice do you give social scientists that are learning data analytics? Any particular hints for psychologists trying to understand acceptable norms of behavior when creating data science
0: projects? Oh, I don't, I don't know if I've had any specific conversations of that, that type. I, I would say, in general, I've found my This is not kind of exactly answering your question, but I I found that psychologists moving towards data science or data analytics is actually a really good skill to have. And I found it really, really handy in my career because I guess psychology at the end of the day, depending on which part of psychology you're in, but it's very much concerned with why people do things. And at the end of the day, in data science, that's kind of what we're focusing on too, right? If you're in a retail business and you're working in data science, a lot of your work is thinking about why did people take this action. So having that curiosity around that is is a very good, you know, uh, foundational skill set to have for for a data scientist. I know that's not exactly your question, but I didn't have a good answer for your question, so I just went off on a tangent.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, great question, Christine. I mean. Social scientists, you're probably working with data. You're probably working with observational data. And let's face it, most of analytics that you're doing in a company as a data analyst, it's pretty much observational data, right? Unless you're out there designing experiments yourself, which, you know, that's also a social scientists do. So I think there's a lot of overlap between social scientists and, and data analytics and data science. So any particular hints for psychologists? Trying to understand acceptable norms of behavior when creating data science projects? Yeah be curious. I think that is probably the most acceptable norm of behavior is be, be curious, be fun, and uh, just have fun with it. So a couple more questions, then we'll get into a real quick, uh, what I like to call a random round here. So so you got this awesome YouTube video. If you guys haven't already, check out Andrew Jones, the Science Infinity on YouTube. He's got some really fun, interesting videos, really well-produced and some awesome thumbnails as well, but you got one that talks about the top five reasons that candidates get rejected. I was wondering if you could walk us through those
0: those reasons. Yeah, that was a that was a wee while ago. Now, but, uh, I think I kind of know because they're the sort of the five that I, I boiled down from all of the data that you know from me talking to recruiters and hiring managers. I think I think the, the I think the five reasons why people. Were rejected from from interviews and that that seems quite harsh. Maybe the reasons that they didn't get the role. This was other candidates, maybe, or they weren't ready for the role. So number one, I think very very basic, you just don't have the right skill set. So as much as I talk around, you know, it's not all about just knowing these things. It's about the value you can add. Yet there there are certain skills that people will, will require you to have to be able to work with their infrastructure. But you, but you need to be able to work you know, working away with those skills that can be, you know, efficient and effective in solving business or customer problems. I think another thing is candidates maybe being and this relates to what I just said, candidates being too focused on tools and concepts and not focused enough. And this is not only in, in the way that you work in general, but the way that you convey your ideas to an interviewer. Too focused on tools and, and concepts, not enough about you know understanding business problems and talking about ways that you can solve problems and the impact that that might have on the business or on the customer. I think seeing... What else was there? I, I think something that people mentioned a lot was... Candidates who have obviously jumped ahead to topics like deep learning without necessarily putting in the groundwork with the more classical approaches—you know, this is sort of machine learning in general. That's only one part of data science, anyway. But people that have obviously jumped ahead to deep learning without that really good understanding of what the classical machine learning algorithms can do, because they're amazing—they can do, they can solve ninety-five percent of the problems that need a machine learning solution anyway for most businesses. So so doing the groundwork, putting in the hard yards to understand how they work in a way that means that you can manipulate them in different ways to solve different problems. So a logistic a logistic regression model is not just there to classify churn, you know, churning customers or whatever it may be. There's so many other parts of how that works and how how it can be used. So if you have a good understanding of it, you can be really creative with it. In terms of your approach to the interview itself or or applying for the role i think in terms of your portfolio projects this is more for people who are early in their career and you know you've got a a suite of projects that you want to showcase to people they've gone for projects which are all about complexity they've they've tried to do the most complex thing in the world to show that that they're good but that is often not the way to do it. it 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 becomes very hard for a hiring manager or a recruiter to understand what you're doing. So, so instead of complexity, I always say try and go for portfolio portfolio projects that are have a much higher emphasis on clarity and impact rather than just complexity for complexity's sake. Um, and then, and then the last one I think is it, it's quite a broad area, but just this idea of communication. So, and, and I've talked about this a couple of times today as well. It's it's not just being you can't just be clever. You've, you've got to be able to work with other people in the business who are from all sorts of different backgrounds of all sorts of different skill sets. And and the stakeholders and the management and the business, they're the ones who – who they will be the ones who give the green light for whatever it is that you've built to go into production or to to go on and impact customers. And if they don't give you that green light because they don't understand what it is that you've done because you've not been able to explain it to them, then everything that you've worked on just sits on the shelf, adding no value. And and if you don't add any value, then you're not going to move up in your career, whether that's getting promoted internally or whether that's moving to a new role, because that is what people need to see. They need to see evidence that you've used your skill set to add value.
1: When it comes to career growth and development, uh, what's the biggest lesson you learned the hard way that you want to make sure no one else makes?
0: I think something that I've been guilty of earlier in my career is this idea, and I talked about this before, of not starting with a business problem and working back to a solution. So there's there's some awesome stuff that you can do in data science and you get a project that might need some sort of classification done and you go, do you know what? I was reading about this awesome deep learning model the other day. This new architecture that I saw, and I'm just going to try and force that in, and kind of convince people that we need to do this because it's fancy. And that that never ends that well. Sometimes you can get lucky, and 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 it'll be fine. But often, because you're trying to force something in. It doesn't necessarily align with what the business needs, or you know, in terms of the, the actual outcomes or the timeframes, or the it doesn't work with the architecture that they have, or maybe the people in the business won't understand it as easily. So, so, starting with the business problem, getting an understanding of it, understanding what success might look like, understanding who needs to be involved, get that down first, and then then get your data science hat on and start working. And that sometimes that's a less exciting way to do it but if you want to be a value-adding data scientist it's, it's the best way to do it and i've been guilty of not doing that in the past i would say the
1: last uh formal question before going to what i like to call the uh, random round it's 100 years in the future what do you want to be
0: remembered i would say if if i'm serious it would it would be nothing to do with data science it would just be being a good dad and a good husband my my family's my whole world So that would be the big one. I guess somebody who doesn't, I'm trying to think about like traits that I would like to be remembered for. I guess somebody that, that doesn't necessarily just blindly go and do what everybody else does because it's the popular thing to do and and somebody who stands up for what I believe in. I think there's a little bit of a lack of that in the world right now. Being somebody who's somebody who maybe supports other people rather than tries to bring them down or limit them because you fear that maybe they might become better. than. I would, you know, I think that's a big part of what I what I love about data science infinity is trying to help people get into the industry that I love because I don't see any I don't, I don't see that it's a closed industry and getting more people in is going to impede me in any way. I think I think the more people we get in and the more people that can be working on the types of problems that we have, the better. And 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 that's why data science infinity, like I say, is so rewarding for me. Anything I can do in, in that sense is something that I'd like to be remembered for, I guess, because it makes me happy, I suppose. So I guess it's something I should keep doing.
1: Absolutely love it, Andrew. I think you definitely will be remembered for for all that, man. Uh, Doing awesome work. And you know I know you're a great family man as well. So let's jump into the random round. First question I want to ask is, what do you think will be the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube? And what will that video be
0: about? It would have to be something like like a K-pop song or something. Something that's just massively popular which is just slightly bypassing me at the moment because sometimes I go and Google that I like Google. What's the highest viewed video on YouTube and like six out of the top 10. I'm like, I've never heard of that. Whereas some of them are the classic, the classic ones. Anything, anything that makes me laugh, like people like those fail army videos where people are just getting destroyed, like falling off motorbikes. I think that's the best stuff ever. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd love to see one of those get big. I don't know. What do you think, Harpreet? I'd love to hear another opinion on that.
1: Yeah, this is uh, this is something I've been been asking a lot of people. You know, it's one of the questions I ask in my random round most frequently, just to you know, wisdom of the crowds thing, see what happens. And based on what people have told me, it's likely going to be video involving like you know a cute baby or a cat, and it's probably going to happen by like the year twenty thirty. That's kind of been the.
0: What's the highest views at the moment? It must be a couple of. Like a hundred billion or something?
1: What, not what do not, we... not. Baby Shark with like nine billion or ten billion views. So it's it's still a, a long ways off.
0: Uh, Is that right, Baby Shark? Yeah,
1: like uh, the oh, highest, yeah, highest view. I think, and that just re, like you know, in November twenty twenty, it passed up like Despacito, which had like nine or yeah. ten billion views, something like that, nine billion views. So I mean, not a lot. And I think the first view of Crack one hundred. I'm sorry, the first video to crack, crack one billion views was Gangnam Style back in
0: 2012. Yeah. Um, I know Justin Bieber's got a couple that are up there, doesn't he? he he's, yeah. He's done very well on YouTube. I love yeah. that Baby Shark's the top one. Not that I love Baby Shark explicitly because I've heard it, you know, 100,000 times myself, but I love that there's somebody who, who wrote a song called Baby Shark and I hope that they're just swimming in cash for something like that That's i'd love i'd love to know that they were living in a gold mansion because of that
1: oh so what are you currently reading oh i don't i don't actually well
0: i i don't do a lot of reading for pleasure like i don't read novels or anything um I just have a my office in here is just full of like you can see in the background there there's some of the some of the books that i'm not reading at the moment it's just all deep learning machine learning <laughs> um, data science books and and i don't I don't sit and like read them cover to cover. I never do. They're just like reference books. And I have this, and I was going I to um, do a video or a post on this because I'm curious about if other people learn like I do. So if I'm trying to learn something, I'll have three books all open that on, the, on on say it's deep learning, something in deep learning. yeah. And I'm trying to figure out a way to learn it myself. I'll have three books open to that particular chapter and I'll be reading all of the chapters at the same time. And I'll, it's basically like having three people talking to me about the same subject. And I can pick and choose what makes sense to me and what doesn't. And I can sort of almost piece the puzzle together. I don't know if there's a name for this type of learning.
1: Yeah, of but course. I do it all the time. But that type of reading in particular is called synoptical reading. Y-N-P-O-P-T-I-C-A-L, synoptical reading. Yeah, I did that as well when I was going through some deep learning. I mean, I'm still... Learning deep learning, but I had three books in particular the visual introduction to deep learning, which was uh, the book by Andrew Glassner. I had John Crone's book, uh, Deep Learning yep. Illustrated, and then Andrew Trash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do that as well. Yeah.
0: Wow. I'm good, good now. knowing the name of what that was called. You sound like the sort of person that'd be good on a pub quiz team. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe, yeah.
1: I've <laughs> been in trivia for a while. So, what song do you currently have on repeat?
0: Not Baby Shark at the moment with past Baby Shark, where I'm currently, I don't get to choose a lot of the music in my household. We've got Trolls World Tour songs. So Trolls Just Want to Have Fun, which I actually like. It's really cool. My daughters love the song Raw by Katy Perry. So that's on repeat at the moment. And, And then contrasting to those is their, you know, Metallica's Black Album came out 30 years ago. The other week, and so they 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 released this kind of album of people doing covers of their songs, and about twenty different people covered "Nothing Else Matters" because it's an awesome song. One of the versions I don't know if you've heard it is by Miley Cyrus and Elton John. So Elton John's playing piano and Miley Cyrus is singing. Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers is on drums, nice. and it is awesome. So that's that's like the only song of my own choice, which I'm on have got on repeat at the moment. So Trolls, Katy Perry, and Metallica. Yeah, I gotta check that. Uh, out. A
1: likely trio. A huge chili pepper sounds like my favorite band. Check that. Uh, that out. We're gonna go to the uh, the random question generator, and it's gonna be a lot of fun. All right. First question out of the random question generator is: If you had to change your name, what would you change it to?
0: So, so my last name is Jones. My my wife didn't change her name when we got married, so her last name is still her last name, which is Murray. But we've always debated both changing our last name instead of her being Murray and me being Jones to just Mujo. Uh. Like genuinely just, just both changing names. Because in general, the tradition is that the the you know the, the wife changes her name and she just has to kind of do it. My, my wife said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I was like, that's cool. And then we thought, what if we both changed our name to just Mujo? I think that would be super fun. But I'm not brave enough to do it.
1: I like that, Mujo. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, my wife, like, I don't really care about that either. Like, my wife changed her last name. I was like, yeah, I don't really do not care if we do that or not. Uh, then my son has the hyphenated last name. Yes, uh, same as us. Yeah. Yeah, Mujo. I like that. <laughs> What's on your bucket list this year?
0: Oh, oh man. The bucket list items over the past 18 months have been a bit tricky, haven't they? Do you know my. my the the what the place in the world that i love the most is is dubai i just love going there and, and and staying in a nice hotel and just getting the like 40 degree you know celsius 40 degree weather and just relaxing there i i love it so much i i, I just want to go back so badly but at the moment with travel being a bit tricky it's just gonna to have to wait i want to go back
1: i've never been to a uh, to, to dubai that's uh. It's on the list of places that I want to go. Love to check that place out. But yeah, 40 degrees Celsius. Like that I don't like hot weather. Like
0: I, I just Yeah, don't. I do, I do. I, I, I do if I'm at like at a hotel by a pool. If I'm yeah. like in the city of London or something, I'm not interested, you know, like walking down the street for work or something. Not interested. But yeah, if you're by a pool, I,
1: I can deal with some some hot temperatures. Yeah, man. I think for me the perfect weather, probably twenty one to twenty two Celsius. I think that's like absolutely yeah. perfect. What's that in Fahrenheit, I don't know, 22C2F? That is 71.6 degrees. What's the story behind one of your scars?
0: I've got a scar that runs just across here on my forehead. It's fading a little bit now, but I went to, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe like nine years ago, I met a bunch of my mates from New Zealand and Thailand, and we went to like the full moon party on, on New Year's Eve, and there was uh, big flaming hoops and, and in Thailand, you you drink from a bucket, which is basically like a Red Bull and vodka, but the Red Bull's not Red Bull. It's like there's possibly some sort of gasoline in there. And long story short, I thought I can jump through that hoop. That's super easy. Jump through the hoop. I actually made it through the hoop. But when I went to do my landing, I, I cushioned my fall with my own knee. And so it just like split open my head, but I mean it didn't dampen the night. Obviously, I'd, I'd had enough Red Bull and vodka at that point to just carry on. So that's my scar story.
1: Um, but that Red Bull they got in Thailand—that's like the original, original Red Bull. Like that's the—that's uh, true. That's the OG Red true. Bull. True.
0: Yeah,
1: that's yeah. powerful. Uh, what languages do you speak?
0: Well, I speak English, and the the only other language which I would say I speak more than a little bit would be uh, Maori which is the language from New Zealand mm-hmm. but you know the, the the people of New Zealand and, and I don't speak it fluently but I know quite a bit of it because I did it all through school and my wife's family are part Maori so you know they're very proud of the heritage and and we learn a lot of it to teach the the girls as well so that would be kind of my second language I guess
1: that's awesome man oh what are you a natural at
0: Uh definitely nothing to do with data science i have to work really hard for for everything in data science i'd say i've, I've always had a natural tendency for sport anything with a, anything with a ball I, I just all day every day i wasn't inside on tv and anything. all day every day as a kid i was outside kicking a rugby ball around or throwing a cricket ball or whatever so that stuff's my most natural talent i think
1: I love it, man. I can see that. I can see that as well. So, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Andrew, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to, to be on the show. How can people connect with you? Where can they find you online?
0: Yeah, well, firstly, my, my pleasure completely. I absolutely appreciate it. So, so good to come on and talk to you, you know, one-on-one finally. I, I love it. So, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. That's my main social media. So, if you can find me. My, my name is Andrew Jones and then Data Science Infinity. So, it makes it a little bit easier because Andrew Jones is... An extremely common name. I, like you mentioned, I am on YouTube, just under Andrew Jones. It's something I'm starting to try to build up a little bit. And then i am recently just joined Instagram as well. So you can find me on there as well. And that's just under Data Science Infinity. But if you connect with me on on LinkedIn and, you, and you've got any questions about data science or you're looking to transition to data science, then just just message me and I'll definitely get back to you. And then, you know, I've talked a little bit about Data Science Infinity and, and what it is and why it works the way it does. So if you want to learn more about that, then... Then the, the site for that is data-science-infinity.com. So head there, there's all the information. There's you know, the full curriculum, which you can use for your own sort of study guide. You know, pathway to, towards data science. And remember, that's all based on you know, hiring managers' inputs. There's all, all sorts of preview videos. There's feedback from students. And then you can contact me through there as well.
1: Yeah, I'll be sure to uh, link to that in the show notes, uh, link to, to all the mentioned uh, places. Andrew, thanks again. For for you know taking time and, and and coming by, I know I know it's it gets late for you. I think it's pretty late right now, so it becomes tough to make it to our uh, data science happy hours. But one of these days, man, I swing back to my earlier sessions that I yes. have uh, earlier in the day. But I would love to love to have you uh, there as well. Thank you again for coming on the show, man. Appreciate you being here.
0: Yeah, my pleasure completely. And I'm definitely trying to get onto the office house because, like you said, I've got my own office now in the house. So if it's mid afternoon here, which I think the comment was one was today, I should definitely get there
1: yeah absolutely Uh, thanks again and my friends remember you've got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone